So someone stopped me in the high street the other day and said, uh, so uh, you go to that church where they all carry their prayer mats when they go on a Sunday. Is that right? So I said, no, 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 it's not prayer mats. It's blankets to keep us warm if the weather's a bit chilly. So uh, there you go, folks. <coughs> I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but um, perhaps some of us here have had the misfortune of having to attend a court appearance. There may be some people that are even thinking about attending a court appearance of some description. Well, if I did ask for a show of hands, I'd have to put my hand up and say that, uh, yes, I have had the privilege of uh, receiving one of those letters in the post, which seemed to take forever to come. And it says something like this, uh, Her Majesty summons you. Uh, to appear before the justices of the peace on a certain date at a certain time. Now, if you haven't had one of those, you want to try and keep it that way because uh, I think one reason that they send those letters and it seems to take forever for the letter to come is they just want to keep you sort of like on your toes thinking to yourself, this is, this is terrible, okay? And then eventually you start thinking to yourself, uh, perhaps after two or three months, they've forgotten, it's not going to come. But do you know what? They don't forget and the letter will eventually come. My brother and I had an incident on the A329 between Wokingham and Reading. It was uh, late at night, and we were traveling back from the equivalent of uh, chat that we have uh, there at the, uh, the Baptist Church in, uh, in Reading. And uh, I was 19, I think, roughly. My brother was 17, and he decided to overtake me as we were going up the A329 which was a wide road, a, a trunk road that linked the two, the two cities up. And just as he got level with me, we both look in the rearview mirror and there's this blue flashing light at the back, okay? And do you know what, how your heart sinks when that happens? I, I won't ask again for a show of hands as to whether you've experienced that. But uh, because the police officer felt we were racing at the time, it couldn't just be a standard fixed penalty notice. It had to go through the process of being called, pulled over, and uh, he said, look, lads, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have to go to court, and it'll be up to the magistrate as to what's going to take place. As I say, I was 19, my brother was 17, and that's uh, what happened. So the court appearance finally came through, and they put us down for dangerous and reckless driving, okay? Which, uh, you know, in hindsight, was absolutely true, because it was uh, a silly thing to be doing. We were going way over the speed limit in a fairly built-up area, and, uh, and that was the result. And I do have to say to you that personally, I was, you know, looking back, grateful. Because there are times when we need to learn lessons. There are times when we need to know and be reminded what the rules are. And I don't know what it is about uh, young guys and cars and going too fast. But sometimes it's good to be reminded. Now, you might feel it's a bit insensitive to have spoken of this in the circumstances that we are finding ourselves in here in, uh, in our community. But I hope that the story that I've related to you and as we begin to look at God's word, as Randy read to it very clearly for us, will help us to understand. And I want you to know that I'm not making any particular judgment at all on anybody else. I've just simply explained what had happened to my brother and myself when, uh, uh, when we were young. But I would urge all of you, particularly young people here, to drive carefully, to be careful. 
some of you may not know what driving in snow is like yet, so I'm going to encourage you to be careful. Um, I've already spoken to the fact that we've had three of our young people, and I, I don't know if you're all here, but you may be, where your cars have turned and the events that have taken place of this week and the previous week could have been affecting this church and some parents here in a very real way. And so I'm grateful and I thank the Lord as we look back at the situation to say that graciously God intervened and our young people were kept safe. And we rejoice in that, but we recognize that we need to be careful. So that's the end of the lecture in terms of driving. Um, I still have trouble driving on the correct side of the road occasionally. So I'm not the person to, uh, to come running to if you want any help when it comes to driving. When my brother and I finally got that uh, court appearance uh, date that had come through, uh, we're called and we're all gathered together in this room outside of the, uh, the courtroom itself. And there was one thing that we all had in common. It was a group of young guys, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, all of us together. Some of them were bragging about how fast they'd been and who'd been at court going the fastest and so on. And I remember Sam and I were thinking to ourselves, you know, we shouldn't be here because we'd already had to face the wrath of our mother, which was not a pleasant experience. And we did feel that in terms of the court appearance, could it be any worse? Uh, fortunately, I, I can say to you that it wasn't, <laughs> okay? Um, because remember, guys, do not upset your mum on, on situations like this. And as we went into the doors, finally our names were called, and we knew that there wasn't a hope of getting off leniently because at the uh, top of the court uh, were sat uh, the three magistrates, two women and a guy, and the head magistrate was a lady in her late 60s with uh, half-cut glasses with gold rims, and she peered over as we came in, and the glare, we just knew, and we basically got the maximum penalty possible. <laughs> that was the result, and I remember her words. It's young men like you that make this country so dangerous on its roads, and, uh, and so on. <clears throat> now, what's all this got to do with the section of Scripture that we've heard read to us this evening from Matthew chapter 26? Well, in some respects, uh, not a great deal, because obviously the situation, and I wouldn't ever want to make any comparison between the situation that we faced and that that our Lord Jesus Christ faced. However, the fact that I've told you the account and the story that I've related to you helps us to begin to focus on the situation that we find here in this section of Scripture. Now, if you have got a Bible uh, with, with you tonight, uh, we are going to be looking at quite a few different texts and verses, uh, mainly um, from uh, this section in Matthew, to try and help us to understand what it was that was taking place uh, here, and uh, particularly to understand the relationship, the implications into our lives today. So as I said, I'm not comparing directly the accounts that, uh, that we have, but there are certain things that we can take. And I would like to suggest that there are two. Firstly, the account that uh, Randy has read to us is the account of our Lord Jesus Christ in a court facing his judges. There's also a jury that is present. Uh, there are people that are ready to give um, a, a condemnation or whatever. 
And of course, there is no real comparison to the court appearance that I've mentioned in the city of Reading in England many years ago now. But the facts that we see between the two are that in my court appearance, the case was accurately presented. The police officer did tell the truth. The signs on the street were accurate. There was good lighting. There was no excuse. When we had taken our driving tests, we knew what the rules were. The book said, no racing. The book said, don't try and overtake when you're already exceeding the speed limit. The book said, drive carefully, not just for your own safety, but for the safety of other people on the road. And so we recognize that. But when it came to the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ here, um, in, in, in the court appearance, if you like, that was taking place, none of that was the case. Because the truth was not told. Uh, the, the witnesses were false witnesses. Everybody involved in this court case knew what the truth was, but they were determined not to apply the rules in any way whatsoever, not to apply justice in any way whatsoever. And so when we turn to verse 59 of the chapter that we have read together, we read, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the councils sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But none was found. Now, why did they seek false testimony? Well, they sought false testimony because they knew the truth. They knew that there was nothing that they could condemn Jesus for unless it was false, unless it was not the truth. And so that's why they had to seek false witness, false testimony. There was no standard of justice and fairness applied to the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 60, the very next verse, goes on to say that many false witnesses came forward and then two came forward who stated this and said, and said this, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it again in three days. Now on the face of it, you think to yourself, well, what's that got to do with anything? But it had everything to do with the Pharisees and the chief priest. Because the temple was holy. No one speaks against the temple. And it's the interesting thing is that Jesus did say something very similar to this. So that in that sense, the witnesses were truthful. If you turn, and you don't have to, but if you want to, John chapter 2 and verse 19 in fact, there's a very interesting section of Scripture there. Jesus answered the Jews who had kept asking for a sign. And so we begin to see the setting that is being spoken of there. They're saying, show us a sign and then we'll believe. By saying this, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. I will raise it up. But Jesus was not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus was talking about his own body. Now, they didn't understand that. And so remember that when you make a statement, remember to make sure that the statement is true. 
that it's true in the context in which it is spoken, as well as in fact. The Jews took very seriously the statement that was made against the temple. <clears throat> because the temple was the focus and the center of their religion. In fact, it was the same charge that was brought against Stephen, wasn't it? I think we touched on Stephen this morning. Stephen was one of the deacons that had been chosen to help in the distribution to those who were struggling. And by the way, some good news. Uh, we've been looking for accommodation for uh, a few uh, people within our church. And all of a sudden, there's been a, a, a lot of accommodation. That, well, not a lot, but there has been uh, accommodation which has been met. And it's good to be able to report that Max, the guy from the Ukraine, has found accommodation in, in uh, Springford, I think, and uh, Ben, who's been living in his car for the last 76 days, is going to go and see somewhere tomorrow. So we're grateful for that, and we've been praying for that. And there are others uh, that uh, have similarly found accommodation, so we're grateful. But Stephen was put in charge of looking after the distribution of food to the widows and elders because there'd been some disputes and problems over the way that it had been done. And sometimes you've got to get the right guy in to do this. And I think just to challenge our deacons here, just notice the sermon that he preaches. Uh, we referred to it briefly this morning. But in the service uh, sermon that he preaches in Acts chapter 6 and verse 13, we discover that they had also set up false witnesses against Stephen. In fact, there are many similarities between the trial of Stephen and the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ, even to the point that we read this in verse 13. This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and also the law. And so we see that again, that is the problem that they have and they make a big issue of it because at the center of their religion is the temple. Now, of course, our Lord Jesus could not deny that he had made this statement and neither could he explain the spiritual meaning of the statement to this group of worldly, carnal, carnally minded, religious people. And so our Lord Jesus, the scripture state, remained silent because that is what he had to do. So verse 62 says, do you answer nothing? As Caiaphas speaks to him, do you answer nothing? Now the second reason that this section of scripture reminds me of my court appearance in Reading is the fact that the Bible tells us that one day every single one of us will be judged by an all-living and by a just God. You see, friends, there's not one of us here this evening that should not be concerned about this because we will all face judgment. Now, standing in front of a lady with half-round glasses and a, and a glare on her face was bad enough. It was terrifying, in fact. Sam and I had even put on our best Sunday clothes for this particular court appearance. We did our best. And she wasn't having any of it. But there's going to come a time, a day, when we will stand before a living, righteous judge. And he will know what the charge sheet is. And it'll be long. Romans 3.10, as it is written, 
there is none righteous, no, not one. Just in case there was somebody who thought that they would be righteous, Paul adds that statement at the end, no, not one. And so this evening I say to you, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For all have sinned includes all of us. Not for all who have sinned really badly, but for all who have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be, and what a word, recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time that you spend on earth. Now, the time that you spend on earth might be long. Some people get to live to 100 plus. And others don't make it out of their teens. So you see, God's word is gracious because it's warning all of us to be careful. To be careful and to call to him. Because we're all guilty of sin and we will all be judged. We will be recompensed. It's got an anonymous sound to it, hasn't it? It's not compensated, it's recompensed. We will either be rewarded or we will have to pay. Basically, all of us will be put on trial concerning our verdict on Jesus. Because you see now, as this court appearance shows that we have here in front of Caiaphas, the high priest, and as we see and as Randy read, the crowd that was gathered, they were the jury. And they made the verdict. And you will be put on trial concerning your verdict on Jesus. In other words, from our reading this evening, the Lord will be the judge of how we have judged him. It's quite reasonable, isn't it? How do you judge Jesus? We spoke this morning about uh, the fact that there are different ways that we respond to things. We can be amazed, we can be perplexed, or we can be mockers. And there are many people who mock Jesus. And in doing so, they have made their verdict clear. You see, when Jesus Christ stood on that balcony with Pilate and he overlooked this great gathering of people from all the nations around the world because we know very much that they were the same group that are there on, on Pentecost. Because the people were the jury. Pilate's the judge. 
Caiaphas is the judge. And the people were the jury. And as the deafening roar of excited people suddenly faded to silence, the judge asks for the verdict. You can almost feel it now. There's silence. And Pilate says, what do you want me to do with him? And their answer was emphatic and it was clear. In the next chapter, chapter 27, verse 22, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, they kept shouting. Because they'd made their verdict. And for many in that crowd, their answer determined their eternity. Lost. Separated from God. Over a period of three years or so, thousands and many indeed in that crowd had lived with the blessings that Jesus had brought. Perhaps some of them there were, were people that could recount to the blessings very personally. When he'd healed a leper, both families and communities were helped. After the occasion when he fed 5,000 who had listened to his messages for days, they went back home joyfully to share Jesus' teaching with friends and family. And whole towns were uplifted. The conversation with the woman of Samaria in John 4 brought the good news, the gospel, again to a town and to an entire province. But after all of this, there was a growing hostility toward Jesus. Why? Well, because he had broken the man-made rules that the Jewish traditions had held to. But please notice that it was the man-made rules that Jesus had broken. It was not the law of God that he had broken. It wasn't the moral code of God that he had broken. And it's so very important that we understand this, because if Jesus had broken the law of God then he would not have remained sinless. And if he had not remained sinless, he could never have saved us. Because he would have become a lawbreaker. And he could not have been our savior. Now I realize that some of you may, maybe would say, well, what about John 5.18, which states that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. Well, when you read the context properly, you see that John is describing the perspective of the Pharisees. And when John is speaking from his own perspective, he writes that Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, um, at verse 17 of John 5. And in contrast, the Pharisees see Jesus' uh, good work as breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal to God. The next verse, verse 18. But remember that of the four gospel writers, John is the clearest about announcing Jesus' deity. So there's little question that he is not actually accusing Jesus of violating the Old Testament law. No. All our Lord was doing was violating the imposed unbiblical norms of his day, which had been imposed on the Jews by their religious leaders in order to ensure that they didn't violate 
the real law, the law of God. Now, of course, the larger issue was that Jesus had claimed to be equal with God. That was the thing that was the massive problem for them in real terms. So back to our text, verse 63, I put you under oath, says Caiaphas, by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And our Lord Jesus in the next verse, verse 64, answers and said, it is as you say. And then our Lord goes on and says, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus made this very clear. And of course, many people were following him. He had forgiven them of their sins. And all of this stirred up the anger and the jealousy among the religious leaders of the day. And eventually, of course, Jesus was arrested and tried several times before being sentenced to death. Now, from the Old Testament, we know that the priest was meant to serve the whole of his life as the high priest in the temple. But when the Romans came in, they could see some problems with this particular uh, uh, requirement. And one of the problems was, well, what do we do if we have a high priest who you know, doesn't toe the party line, doesn't do whatever, he's, whatever we want him to do? So they changed the rules, and they elected the high priest to come in and to serve for a period of time. And if he did anything wrong, well, they'd get him out and get someone else in. So the situation that we have here with Caiaphas, very simply, is that Caiaphas was a yes-man to the Romans. He was somebody that they could work with. He was somebody who would do what they would ask him to do. In other words, there was no resistance. And Caiaphas, of course, is trying to balance or to juggle um, a relationship between the Romans and, of course, the Jewish people. It wouldn't have been easy for him. I don't think in some respects that uh, he uh, uh, necessarily was able to, um, to, I mean, it was a tightrope that he was walking on. But the reality is, is that his religion stood in the way for him. We know that from the accounts of the Gospels and indeed elsewhere in Scripture, that each character of this mock trial that was taking place, this corrupt trial that was taking place, knew that Jesus was innocent and Caiaphas was no exception. They all knew, including the vast crowd that formed the jury, what the verdict should have been. But they all made a decision. And the decision they made was the wrong decision. And as I pointed out earlier, the Bible clearly teaches that one day every person will be judged will be judged on how you have judged him. Therefore, it's vitally important to make the right evaluation of Jesus Christ and to act accordingly toward him and toward our fellow men and women. Those who long ago condemned Jesus did so because of selfish motives. And this evening we close by simply looking at Caiaphas in a little more detail and considering specifically what his problem was. What was it that blinded him from seeing Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior?
And the application, of course, is what is it that blinds us? What blinds you this evening? What is it that determines that you don't want to call to Jesus for your salvation? That you're not interested to find out what it is that he has done for you, that he continues to do for you, what he has promised he will do for those who repent of their sin and turn to him. Caiaphas was a shepherd. No, he didn't have a flock of sheep necessarily that he was looking after, but he had the nation of Israel. He should have known the law. You know the law. Thou shalt not murder. You don't need me to tell you that. You've known that all your life. But throughout the Gospels, we see him and other Jewish religious leaders planning on how they could kill and murder Jesus. Because he was in the way. He stopped them from having the place in society that they felt was rightly theirs. In simple terms, Caiaphas would not, could not leave his religion. It was that simple. Caiaphas was the distinguished high priest for the Jews, and so it was before him that Jesus was brought and immediately after his arrest in the garden. And immediately false accusations were made about Jesus. Caiaphas, he knew the law. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not murder. So what hope was there for the nation if the shepherd was prepared to break the law? To have what he wanted. Jesus was spat at. He was beaten. He was struck with a rod. Jesus was accused of blasphemy, even though Caiaphas and all the religious leaders were well aware that Jesus had performed miracles and had transformed many lives. In fact, all of Jesus' words and works consistently proved that he was God. God come in flesh to this earth. So why did Caiaphas not believe him? Well, we're told that Caiaphas sat in the seat of Moses in the seat of honor in chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel and verse 2. Caiaphas knew and he enjoyed the religious ceremony. He enjoyed the regalia. He reveled in the quietness, the mystique, the tranquility of a pious atmosphere. You know, religious music, motifs can combine to create a unique stillness of mind and soul that's good and comforting. And sometimes we become prepared to simply accept that and nothing else. And all too often we're prepared in our lives to allow ourselves to be religious. As long as we do the right things, go to the right places, turn up at church, dress in the right clothes, be careful what we say on Sundays, watch what we do and so on. We feel comfortable with the music playing and the status quo being maintained. We feel secure in what we know. But that's as far as it goes. That's the depth of it. It's outward only. Yes, it might calm our inside in our heart because we feel that we're doing the right thing. And the thought of all of this being upturned and replaced by the person and the workings of Jesus Christ was more than such a religious leader could bear. And so often that's the case for us. We don't want to see the status quo changed. 
<laughs> We've built it up around us. We know what we're living like. We're happy. Our parents are happy. Our children are happy. We've done the best we can. And there's a sense of peace that we have. But it's not a lasting peace. And it won't take us into eternity with Jesus. And the problem is we already know that. Caiaphas knew the truth. Pilate knew the truth. All the people knew the truth. But they were not prepared to let go of what they treasured the most. And so an irate Caiaphas challenged Jesus and went straight to the nub of the matter. It says in Matthew 26, verse 63, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And when our Lord answered and said to him, it is as you say, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And this was too much for Caiaphas to take. And what are we told that he did? We're told that he ripped his clothes because he is just beside himself. And in some sense, we can react in exactly the same way. We keep hearing the truth. It comes to us in so many different ways. Perhaps our parents tell us the truth. Perhaps we do come to church. We go to other youth clubs. We go to different places. We meet people in the street. We see something written on a board, perhaps. We turn on the radio, we switch on the TV, do something, and suddenly there it is, the reminder that comes through. But we don't need any of that because in our heart of hearts, we know the truth. We know that Jesus is God and that he died for us. But he demands something from us. And that is repentance that we turn away from our life and the world and we live for him and we call to him. And we can tear our clothes. It was too much for Caiaphas. You see, the religious hierarchy that he was the top of it knew the truth, but it couldn't let go of it. They'd already decided that Jesus had to die. They knew the commandments, but they've been looking for the last three years for a way of killing Jesus. But in their heart of hearts, they knew the truth. Peter in his sermon to the Jews in Acts 2 verse 36 said this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then we read, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The shepherds of Israel should have known what to do, but they were happy in their religion. They were happy in what they had. They were content 
in making sure that their place in society was maintained. And I know that this comes as a shock to some of us here this evening, but it's totally possible to have religion without substance. It is totally possible to be religious without having a relationship with God. It's totally possible to be religious and actually not want God in your life. Because you know that if he comes into your life, there's things that have got to go. Changes have to be made. Or are you just simply adhering to a man-made religious system? Friends, this evening, your verdict on the person of Jesus Christ is of infinitely more consequence than your dedication to a formal show of religion will ever be. Did you know that it's even possible to be the pastor of a church but be lost? Because religion can take over. We do all the right things. It is correct to say that often religious people of Jesus' day were the subject of criticism from our Lord himself. You know, in the end, it wasn't the drunkards. It wasn't the immoral people, the prostitutes and so on. It wasn't the dishonest people, the liars, the tax collectors who crucified Jesus. It was the religious people. The religious leaders who felt self-sufficiency and therefore concluded that they did not need Jesus. And friends, this evening, please understand that you can never rely on yourself and your deeds alone to settle eternal matters, to settle your salvation. There must be a moment of turnaround, a realization that you have to trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. There's no other option. Jesus said, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18, verse 3. And friends, here's the thing. These words of Jesus apply to the religious, to the very best of society, to the very kindest of people that you can ever meet. It's crushing, isn't it? There's no other option. Tonight, beware of Christless religion. Jesus reminded us that on the day of judgment, that there will be many who will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And we could, if we like, extend that to say and preached in your name, gone door to door in your name, been involved in running churches in your name. We've done all this. And Jesus will declare, verse 23, Matthew chapter 7, I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice lawlessness. Tonight, the question is very simple. Are you religious? And only religious? Is being religious what you're aspiring to? 
is being like Caiaphas, what you want to be, content, happy, yeah, breaking the rules here and there? Or do you want Christ who said that he came into the world to save sinners? Those who hold to ceremonial piety and pomp often let go of Jesus. We see that all the time because Jesus gets in the way of how we feel. I plead with you, turn to Jesus now. Call to him for salvation. Repent of your sin and cling to him. Caiaphas knew the truth but he couldn't let go because he'd have too much to lose. Pilate knew the truth. Even his wife told him. The crowd had seen Jesus at work in their lives. They knew the truth. They'd seen the lepers healed, the blind made to see, the deaf who couldn't hear to hear, the dumb who couldn't speak, demons driven out of people, the dead raised, they knew the truth, but they couldn't let go of their religion, their religiosity. Turn to Jesus now, call on him, repent, and cling to him. Amen.